Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. With me on the show today is Amar Kaisi, author and professor of healthcare administration at Trinity University. Today, we're going to be talking about the power of low ego, high drive leadership. Conventional thinking would have us believe that it's those filled with hubris and free of self-doubt that make the best leaders. But as Amr joins me today to discuss his new book, Humbitious, we'll find that that's not true. Amr, let's start with a little more definition of what is humbitious and how did you develop the term? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Maureen. And, and the term humbitious is obviously a made-up word but you kind of have to make up a new word to write a new book, right? (laughs) So humble and ambitious. On the humility side, we look at things such as being self-aware, such as being generous with the people that you work with, and being open-minded, changing your mind when you need to change your mind. On the ambitious side, we talk about things such as, first and foremost, being competent, right? Knowing your stuff, having the technical knowledge to do the work of leadership. But it's also about having the confidence to make decisions, especially when things are uncertain. And it's also about having the courage to have difficult conversations and to speak up. So when we bring those two together, that brings us to this quality or trait of being a ambitious leader. As I listen to this, I'm just really excited because we suggest that there are seven competencies for effective leadership and professionally humble is the first one. So let's go back to the humility part. If I were to turn the dial on humility, how much is right for the situation? How much humility to dial up? We can think of this on a spectrum or maybe on a two by two matrix. On one end, we have humility going from low to high. On the other one, we have ambition going from low to high. So in my work as an executive coach, I've worked with leaders who are high on humility, but low on ambition. We all know people like this. They're other-centered, they're very generous, but they lack the assertiveness. They get along well with everyone, but they don't get much done. On the other end of that, I've worked with leaders who are too ambitious, but not humble enough. Now, as we know, this is a dangerous combination because these types of leaders set bold visions, but they don't involve anyone. They don't listen to input, and they tend to leave a trail of damage everywhere they go. They're not that effective either. And then we might look at the situation where someone may have low humility and low ambition, but these are not the kind of leaders that I work with, (laughs) you know, because what's the point? High humility and high ambition, that's what we're talking about, where you can bring in both, and that's ambitious leadership. However, as you suggested, it's not both at 100% all the time. There are some situations where you dial up the humility and you dial down the ambition, and other situations where you do the opposite. There are some people that you'll be working with, for example, that will require you to bring in more of the softer stuff, the humility, the compassion, the empathy, whereas others might need a little bit of a kick in the behind, for a lack of a better term, to motivate them. So it's really about using our emotional intelligence as leaders to determine how much do I bring up each one of these good traits to every situation, every team, every meeting. Can you tell us a little bit about the research? Because intuitively it makes sense. And yet we don't see an abundance of people who dial that needle well. Well, let's start from the beginning, right? With the classical management book, Good to Great, that we're all Uh familiar with, and I'm sure the listeners either have read it or at least have heard of it. Very, very briefly, Jim Collins and his team studied 1,400 organizations and found that 11 of them 
were able to make the leap from good to great financial performance. So naturally, they went in and they studied these organizations to see what is in common between them and how are they different from the vast majority of other organizations. And what they found was one of the most important factors was the character of their CEOs. Now, remember, when the researchers went into these organizations, they were expecting to find type A personalities, bang on the table, authoritative types. But what they found was the total opposite, because all 11 of these CEOs were very humble. They gave credit to others when things were going well, and they took ownership. They took the blame when things were not. But they were not weak or passive leaders. They were fiercely determined, and they were very ambitious. But their ambition was not for themselves. It was for the team and for the organization. And as you recall, Jim Collins called these level five leaders. Now, good to great, this was 30 years ago. So the question is, do we have more current research that has looked at this balance of humility and ambition? And the answer is absolutely yes. I've spent the last seven, eight years of my career looking at that research, curating it, understanding it, summarizing it. And we've had dozens of studies that have confirmed that this thesis of high humility and high ambition still holds till today. Just very, very recently, earlier this year, Harvard Business Review did a survey of more than 500 business people and asked them, what are the expectations of leaders today, especially in this uncertain work environment? And one of the main characteristics was to have the ambition and the confidence to make hard decisions and to balance that with the humility to admit mistakes. The researchers called it being a humble hero, which is very, very similar to what we're talking about being a ambitious leader. We talk about it often as the mind of the scientist, that I'm experimenting, I set a path, I followed that path, but through the lens of given the rate of change and the speed of change, I'm not going to get everything right. So that humility to be willing to change course, but also the certainty that I have to make a decision and I have the skills to make the best possible decision at this point in time, knowing that we're going to have to course correct. Yeah. That mindset of the scientist is what we refer to as open-mindedness or teachability. It's about looking at the facts and making a decision. And then if the facts change, we come back and say, I was wrong, or I didn't look at this in a comprehensive way. And it's also about involving others in helping us make the decision. It's about recognizing that as a leader, yeah, I may be the CEO or the COO or whatever executive position, but I don't have a monopoly over the truth. There are other people on my team that will bring in different perspectives that I'm not aware of, and I have to listen to them. But eventually, as you said, it's still my responsibility to make the final decision. But I'm not making a decision by sitting in my office and closing the door and thinking about it really hard. I'm making a decision by looking at the facts and by involving others. That's where humility and collaboration are almost pairs on the mindset and behavior continuum that I have to recognize that I don't have all of the information. It's not even possible anymore. You mentioned collaboration. I think a prerequisite for collaboration is curiosity. So let's say you and I want to collaborate on a project. We both have to be curious about each other's perspectives. Because if I think that I already know everything, then what's the point from the collaboration, right? Then it's not the collaboration. And, and I'm just asking you 
to do something and then expecting you to do it like I asked for it. So that curiosity mindset also relates to what we were just talking about a minute ago. And it's about assuming that I'm going to go into every conversation, every relationship, and I'm going to learn something new. I don't know everything. Yes, I have the expertise. Yes, I have the competence, but I don't know everything about everything. And because of that, I engage in those collaborative relationships. And it sounds like, again, the pairing that curiosity goes with humility, because I have to acknowledge that I don't know everything. Especially in this day and age, right? With information overload that we have in any industry, most of my work is in the healthcare industry. And things are changing so fast in that industry, but the same applies to every other industry. So any leader that pretends that they know everything, they're not fooling anyone. They're just fooling themselves. Our team members know that we're not perfect. They know that we don't know everything. So, so why even pretend? Again, competence is a non-negotiable. Knowing your stuff is a non-negotiable. But you show up as someone who is humble by telling your team members, I have some areas of expertise, but you all also have some areas of expertise, and I want to lean on your expertise. I want you to support me. I want you to tell me, you know, when I have blind spots, when I'm not seeing the situation comprehensively. You coach, and one of the things I'm curious about is when I run into leaders who are kind of the old mindset, but the mindset I was raised with, as the leader, you're supposed to have the answers. Mm -hmm. It's our roles to help leaders see that there's an alternate and more effective path. But if my entire view of myself is I have the answers, it's hard to unlearn and shift focuses. Are you finding something similar and that a lot of your work revolves around that mindset shift? Yeah. It may be an old-fashioned mindset, but I see it sometimes among the younger leaders as well. In my day job, I'm a professor of healthcare administration. I teach graduate students who are getting ready to go and become hospital administrators, okay? Many of them, as they are graduating and going to take their first job in a hospital, they are scared by the fact that they're not going to know everything, right? And say, well, how am I supposed to go and lead a team of directors, for example, who have been there for 30 years and I know nothing of what they know? And that's the mindset we need to change, you know. And I tell them, your role as a leader is not going to be to know everything because obviously those people know way more than you do. Your role is to support them. Your role is to be of service to them, right? And that's how we start changing our mindset. And that's how we accept the idea that a leader doesn't know everything. When a leader is going into every situation trying to prove themselves, like some of my students have that mindset, right? They think every meeting, I have to prove myself. Every conversation, I have to prove myself. When we switch from the mindset of proving to the mindset of improving, that makes the whole difference. And that's what I try to work with them and say, think of your interactions with some of those directors who have been in the organization for 30 years as a chance to improve, as a chance to learn from them, not as a chance to impress them with your knowledge and your skills, because they're not going to be impressed with your knowledge and skills. What they're going to be impressed with is your attitude of learning. I love that, especially as young folks, because to your point, if I come out acting like I know everything, especially if I know it's a facade, then I'm going to look like a jerk. Everyone knows a story about some big shot young MBA or, you know, master's students who comes in and pretend like they know everything. People see through that within the first week. 
they know that you don't know everything. So again, why pretend? But rather adjust that mindset and think, okay, how do I take advantage of every situation as a learning opportunity? Again, it feels like a mindset shift a little bit, helping leaders move from, I'm supposed to have the answers. It is a huge mindset shift. My hope of writing Ambitious was to help people start making that mindset shift when they see the evidence. This is not the first book on humility and leadership. There's been several other books, very good books on the topic. Mm -hmm. What I try to do is to say, okay, I want to bring in the research. And that's how I hope people first be convinced that, you know, this is not just the opinion of some professor. This is not the opinion of someone who calls themselves expert. This is all based on years and years of research published in robust scientific journals. We have a lot of that research. You know, when I started working on this project seven, eight years ago, I was so surprised by the amount of research that's being produced on leadership in general, but especially on humility and ambition in leadership. But there is a problem. All of that research is published in obscure academic journals that no one really reads, right? I mean, maybe it's like me and nine other professors in the country that read that stuff. The busy leaders who are out there, you know, your listeners who are so busy putting out fires every day, leading teams, taking care of projects, they don't have time to pick up Academy of Management Review and read a 30-page article on the interaction between humility and confidence, right? No one has time for that. And that's why I curated that research and summarized it so that it can be easily accessible for leaders. And hopefully when leaders look at this body of evidence, they say to themselves, you know what? There is proof that this approach works, and I need to start working on changing my mindset in that direction. I would love for our listeners to hear some of the highlights of that research, because you've invested a great deal of time curating that content. And I think for some of our listeners who think that's a nice idea, but I'm not sure I buy it yet, let's help them move to, okay, there is good evidence. Sure. Just to set it up, the way this research is done is not by asking a leader, are you a humble leader? Or asking them to take a self-assessment because we both know it doesn't work, <laughs> right? If you ask someone who is very humble to rate themselves on humility, they're going to give themselves low scores. Whereas the arrogant person is going to give themselves high scores. So, so self-reporting doesn't work. So what researchers do is they ask the team to rate the leader. They give them a tool, and, and we have some valid, reliable scientific tools that measure humility and leadership. So the team members rate their leader on aspects of self-awareness, open-mindedness, generosity, and so on and so forth. And then we take those teams that say, my leader is humble, and we compare them with teams who say, my leader is not, right? My leader is, is further from the humility you know, score. And what we found is the people who work for humble leaders report a number of different things. They say that they are happier at work. They feel more empowered. They collaborate more with each other. They speak up more, which tells us there is psychological safety. And we can talk about that in depth a little bit later if you'd like. And they also miss less days at work. They're less emotionally exhausted. They're more resilient and they're more productive. They do more at work. So we start looking at this research and we start realizing that this trait of humility and leadership is not just some soft thing, a touchy-feely thing that's nice to have. It's absolutely necessary for all of these important outcomes that I just measured. I mean, we're talking about employee engagement, right? We're talking about productivity. 
We're talking about innovation and creativity. All of these things are important outcomes that every organization and every team, regardless of industry, is tracking right now. And here's this evidence that leader humility leads to improved outcomes. The other research that I want to share is the research that directly connects leader humility with improved financial performance. Now, people are not expecting that, right? But we have also evidence that shows that humble leaders don't just make everyone feel better. They produce several times the return on asset that a non-humble leader produces. So again, this is evidence that this is the right way to treat people. This is the right way to behave. But thankfully, it's also the most profitable way to lead for an organization. So again, without making things too academic and too stuffy, we have this evidence that when you have a humble leader, that can be a competitive advantage for the organization. And yet it seems that they're still in the folklore that people imagine the effective leader being more ego-based, more right and wrong, more good and bad. How do we change that view? Because when corporations or organizations still hire for that outdated mindset and behavior, we're not moving the needle in the way that will allow us to be more effective and more profitable. You know, Maureen, I believe we can change the mindset by doing two things. The first thing I've already talked about, which is sharing the research and the number and the day. Uh The second way is by telling stories. One of the stories that I like to tell, because I believe everyone has that story in the back of their head, is the story of Steve Jobs. Because every time I'm talking about humility, someone who is in the audience will raise their hand and say, what about Steve Jobs, right? You know, he was not an ambitious leader, right? In fact, he was a jerk. Everyone knows that. You read his biographies. People will say he yelled and screamed. He didn't respect people. He took credit for their ideas and all of that. So people ask, okay, how do we understand that? What most people don't realize is that they only know half of the story of Steve Jobs. They don't know the full story. When Steve Jobs first started at Apple, when he was a real jerk who yelled at others and took credit for their ideas and all of that, He actually got fired from Apple (laughs) because mostly because of these behaviors. He got fired from the company that he built. And then he left Apple and he went and he worked at two other organizations. And in that process, started gaining some humility. He even admitted that himself at a speech that he gave at Stanford University a few years later. He said that getting fired was the bitter medicine that the patient needed and the patient being himself, and the disease being narcissism or being a jerk. When Steve Jobs came back to Apple, let's call him Steve 2.0, right? That's the second version of Steve Jobs. When he came back, he had gained some humility. He wasn't perfect, but he listened more. He gave credit to others. He involved others. So he portrayed many of these humble behaviors that we're talking about. He still had the ambition, remember, His ambition was to make a dent on the world. That's how he described it. But when he married that with the humility, that's when the magic started to happen. If you really look at some of the best products that Apple has produced, the iPad, the iPod, the iPhone, all of these came in that second stint, not in the first stint. And a big part of that was the leadership style that Steve Jobs in his second stint adopted, which is marrying the humility with the ambition. So long answer to your question, but I believe we can share the data, but we also have to share stories. 
Can you give us then, Amar, some examples of leaders who are on the other end of the spectrum, who lacked humility and the consequences of that? Yeah, we can share the research on that. How does the research make sense of non-humble people who become successful? Yes, please do that. You know, if we look at business leaders, or even if we look at some political leaders, without mentioning any names, you know, we all have examples of leaders who are not humble, who have achieved some success. Let's call them narcissists. Let's call them jerks. Call them whatever you want. So how do we make sense of that? You know, I've, I've, I've been making the case for ambitious leaders that achieve success in the, for their organizations and their teams. But how do we make sense of the narcissists? So the research is clear. Narcissists tend to emerge more as leaders. They are chosen more for leadership positions. And there's clear evidence behind that. So let's say you and me are on an interview panel, okay? And we're interviewing candidates for a leadership position. And we have two candidates. One is a narcissist and one is more humble. The research shows us that chances are Nine times out of 10, we're going to select the narcissist. That's how it works. Because narcissists tend to be charming. They tend to tell you what you want to hear. They are extroverted. They're exciting. So we tend to choose that individual more for a leadership position. However, six months down the road, when that person is alienating everyone around them and bullying everyone and making everyone's lives miserable, we're regretting our decision. So what we're seeing here is that there is a difference between leadership emergence and leadership effectiveness, right? So narcissists or people who lack humility, yes, they can emerge more as leaders, but they are not effective in the long run. And we have a lot of evidence on that. Because they are lousy team players, because they're bad managers and overall bad leaders, they don't achieve success in the long run. You know, this difference between leadership emergence and leadership effectiveness reminds me of a very complex management theory called the chocolate cake model. It's very simple, actually. So let me tell you about the chocolate cake model a little bit, because I think it's a good analogy for the listeners to remember. Maureen, I want you to imagine that I bring you a whole chocolate cake and I put it on the desk right in front of you. And I ask you to eat the whole thing in an hour, the whole thing. Okay, so you take your first slice and the first few bites obviously are amazing, right? The richness, the texture, the flavor, the moisture, you're really enjoying that chocolate cake. Now let's go back to the narcissists. The first few times you interact with a narcissist, you really enjoy it because again, they're charming, they're charismatic. They tell you a story, they tell you what you want to hear. And that typically happens in the interview. So you are charmed by them, so we end up hiring them. Now let's go back to the chocolate cake. You've had four or five pieces already. You're not enjoying it anymore. You're starting to become nauseous. You're hating that chocolate cake. The same applies to working with a narcissist day in and day out. Once we hire them, if you have to work with them, or even worse, for them, you're eating that chocolate cake every single day. And it's having some negative impact, not only on your physical health, but especially on your mental health. So that's how we make sense with the successful narcissists. Yes, they do emerge more as leaders, but they don't achieve long-term success and they don't leave a positive legacy behind. I love the example. That presents, though, a problem for everyone who's hiring. Mm. My instinct is hire the outgoing one who has the great stories and the great example, not the one who's a little understated, maybe a little boring. 
they are less exciting because they have all of these positive traits. So how do we start selecting differently for hiring for political office, you know, where everything from school boards to high office, it seems that we have been trained with the bias toward narcissists. That is absolutely correct and valid. I've fallen into that trap myself. You know, when I'm interviewing candidates applying to graduate program, you know, my graduate program in healthcare administration, I've noticed myself in the past, I have fallen in the trap of selecting the outgoing charismatic narcissist. Now, let me make sure here, we're not saying every outgoing person is a narcissist, right? But there is that personality type that will charm you and tell you the stories and all of that. And then once you start working with them, you realize that it's all about them. So how do we prevent that from happening? I think first we start with the awareness of it, with the awareness that it's not always the most charismatic, the loudest, the most talkative that is going to be the best student or the best leader or the best politician, right? Now, in an interview, what are some of the questions? Like, let's make this as practical as possible. In an interview, what questions can we ask? I think we can ask some of the traditional questions that are typically asked, but we need to listen better to the answers. For example, one of the questions that most managers will ask is, tell me about an achievement that you've had in the past. Tell me about a success or a project that went really well. When we ask that question, we have to listen really well to how the person answers it. Because a narcissist is going to answer it with, I did this and I did that and I achieved it all on my own. And it all went well because of my awesomeness, because of my genius, because of how smart I am. A more humble person will take some credit but we'll also say, I had a team that helped me. You know, we got a little bit lucky. We were in the right place at the right time. The market behaved in a way that allowed us to achieve. So they acknowledge all of these other factors that allowed the success, especially the team around them. And that's how we start to tease out some of these traits from the interview. Another question we can ask is about previous mistakes, right? Things that didn't go well. And here again, we can listen carefully to how the narcissist answer, because the narcissist is not going to take any ownership. The narcissist is going to say, yes, things didn't go well, well, because that person didn't do what they're supposed to do, and the suppliers didn't bring the products on time, and this and that. So they're not going to take any ownership for the mistake or for the failure. A humble person will take ownership. A humble person will say, you know what? Yes, there were some things that went against us, but... I am the leader. I was the leader. So it's on me. It happened on my watch. You know, it wasn't my fault, but it still was my responsibility because I was the leader of that team. So we can start asking questions like that and listen really carefully to the answers. And that's how hopefully we start weeding out some of those narcissists and jerks in the interview process. What if you inherit a team that already has narcissists and jerks in it? Because that happens for many leaders. You don't always pick everyone. Sometimes you inherit teams that have existing people in them. My advice is first try to work with that person who is more on the narcissism side, on the jerk side, only cares about themselves, and see if they're coachable. And many of them are. Many of them just lack the self-awareness. They don't know that this is how they're coming across. They don't know that this is the impact they're having on others. So we can start working with them and coaching them and giving them chances, and many of them will improve. But if someone is given several chances and do not improve, it's our responsibility of leaders to really kick them out of the team, to not allow that behavior to remain on the team because they can have a toxic effect on everyone else. 
I love that you went to how do we help them shift? Because again, it seems like everything's a continuum. If someone is a narcissistic personality disorder, that's a different thing to fix than lack of self-awareness. And so it sounds like my first step is to tease out where is someone on that continuum and can I help them shift? If they are truly narcissistic, sociopathic, whatever that is, they should be an alumni of my organization. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I, I like the visual of the continuum because on that continuum, we have one end, which is arrogant, narcissist, all of that, right? In the middle, we have the ambitious leader. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the passive person that lacks the assertiveness and all of that. Most leaders that fall into that category that you just described are not going to be on the extreme of the extreme of narcissism, like you call it, like, like a clinical diagnosis, right? Most of them are going to be somewhere between the ambitious and the narcissist. And many of them have ranges. We all have ranges, right? So they may be starting at the higher end of their own range, but we can probably bring them down about 10 or 20 points towards the middle of that continuum. And that's the work of coaching. That's the work of mentoring. That's the work of their bosses who really want to invest in them because they see potential in them. They see that their ambition and their drive is so valuable for the team, but only if we can temper it a little bit with some self-awareness, with some generosity, with some open-mindedness. I absolutely agree. And I want to go back to something you said earlier. If you inherit a team, so there were conditions that attracted those people, whether it was just the hiring, but also likely the culture and the systems that allowed them to stay. So it sounds like not only do I help people build self-awareness, but I also create a little more heat in the system for making that narcissistic or or jerkish behavior uncomfortable. Part of it could be cultural, part of it could be consequences, significant like pay consequences. But I need to build the system that holistically doesn't invite them into my home. And then if they happen to wander in, I need to make the home uncomfortable for that slice of person. They don't get oxygen. Yeah, yeah. I worked with a healthcare leader once who who had that mindset about the team that he had. He was a vice president of strategy for a large health system. And the way he picked the people who worked on his team was he wanted them, first of all, to be super smart, Uh to be collaborative, and to have a low ego. These were his criteria. And most of the time, he managed to bring in people that met these criteria. But every now and then, someone will slip in. Uh You know, again, we're human beings. We're going to try our best in an interview process. But some people can fake their way through an interview process. So his approach to that was as soon as those narcissistic tendencies or jerk tendencies start showing up in a meeting, he will immediately grab the person right after the meeting. He wouldn't wait. Just grab them aside and say, you know what, man, you're way too smart and we want you to succeed on this team. But this behavior is not going to be tolerated. At this meeting that we were just in, you kept on interrupting people. You didn't listen. You pretended like you knew everything. And this behavior is not going to fly here. We're not going to allow this to happen. So I'm going to give you another chance to start working on this. But I want you to know that I won't tolerate that in my meetings. And it was about how fast he acted on it. Because as we know, what gets tolerated gets promoted. 
right? If he allowed that to happen only once with no consequences, then that person will think, well, it's okay to behave like this. So it's our responsibility as leaders to monitor that and to make sure that the way people behave on the team is in accordance to how we want the culture of the, of the team to be. And I want to make sure that we're clarifying here that we're not saying that people can't disagree with each other, right? We're not saying that people can't push back on each other. That's, that's not it. Actually, we want that on our teams because that's the only way we can come up with great ideas. But it's about how we do it. Is that team member coming into every conversation assuming that they know more than everyone else or on purpose interrupting others or not listening to them, right? So that's the behavior that we want to weed out while we're still allowing room for some healthy conflict to happen within the team. Yeah, I'm thinking of things I teach just sentence stems. Would you consider an alternate point of view? Or I see it from a different angle, not you're wrong. Absolutely. You know, I I love that last way you framed it. You know, I see it from a different perspective, from a different angle. I see things differently, right? I get that question a lot from leaders that I'm coaching who want to push back on their boss, right? Which is a very dangerous thing to do, as we all know. How do I go about pushing back on my boss in a way that allow me to keep the relationship? And that's one of the scripts that we use, very similar to what you said. You know, I see things a little bit differently. Will you allow me to share with you how I see it, right? And then you gauge whether your leader is open to it or not. Is there a way to measure humility, ambition? You talked about a two-by-two matrix, you talked about interviews. If I were adding that to my performance management system, because I really value it, I want to make sure that we have taken it into account. And also I may have people on my team who are moving in the right direction, but not yet there, including, and we haven't talked about the more passive ones. We've talked more about the jerk people, Mm -hmm. but not the super smart person who just hasn't yet developed a voice. Let's start with how do we measure it, and then we'll get to the uh, ones who are on the passive end of the spectrum. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we've had years and years of research and well-developed tools that help us measure things. And I brought some of that together and created a very easy-to-use tool to measure your ambitiousness on a scale of 1 to 10. You know, rate yourself on 10 questions. And these questions are things such as, I will believe that I'll achieve great things in my career, but I also constantly seek feedback from others. I spend time in thinking and reflection. I regularly change my mind about issues when new facts emerge. So a good balance between the humble traits and the ambitious traits. And I have that tool, that ambitiousness measure scale on my website, and people can take it for free. But again, I would also encourage people not just to take it for themselves, but to ask the people that they work with or their friends and their family members to rate them on it. And this way you start getting more information. You start uncovering some of your blind spots by having others tell you how you're coming across and whether you need to dial up your humility or your ambition. So we have the tool. Now let's go and talk about the ones on the passive end of the scale, right? How do we help those, right? As you mentioned, you you may have someone on your team who's super smart. They know their stuff, but they're not speaking up. They are not pushing back in a meeting when they have a different opinion. They are delaying difficult conversations, right? They may have someone on their team who is not performing well, but they don't have the courage to hold them accountable or to tell them that you're not meeting expectations. How do we help those? 
What we're dealing with here is the relationship between confidence and competence. If we think about the narcissists, those are the people who have way more confidence than competence. On the other end of the scale, the passive ones, those are the ones who have more competence but don't have the confidence yet. And we need to work on their confidence. And in my opinion and my experience as a coach, one of the best ways to address confidence is to give them the skills. So what are the skills that they need to start speaking up more in a meeting? What are the skills that they need to have a difficult conversation with a direct report, right? A lot of that has to do with equipping them with scripts, equipping them with habits, with behaviors. We all know difficult conversations, how important that is, right? People are afraid to have these conversations because they don't know how to have them. No one has ever trained them to have them. So maybe we can tell them, you know, start with the facts and then share your opinion and then listen, right? Three-step process. Okay, now I have those skills. I start applying them in low-stake situations. And then once I master those, I bring them to the important situations. So we can do a lot of different things, again, coaching the people who are on the other end of the scale and helping them develop that ambition so that it can match their existing humility. That's really helpful. So as I listen to you, I think about how gender plays in. A lot of people, a lot of smart people have looked at that, and we have tons of research on the gender issue. I'm going to try to summarize 20 years of research in in two minutes. I'm going to make a lot of overgeneralizations here. So I want the audience to know that this is grossly overgeneralized. In general, the research shows us that men tend to be higher on ambition and lower on humility. And women tend to be higher on humility and lower on ambition. Now, I'm sure you and I and everyone who's listening have dealt with male leaders who were so humble and have dealt with female leaders who were not that humble. But in general, the whole body of research shows that this is how the two genders fall, is is the men need help more dialing up the humility, the women need help more dialing up the ambition. That was my assumption. And as you talked about the competence-confidence gap, as a person in a female body, I am more likely to experience imposter syndrome compared to my male colleague with equal skills. Yes. So it sounds like the antidote for either side is paying attention and also having the stories and the models of this is what good looks like. Yes. Presumably young boys are raised with the model of more ambition. Young girls are raised with the model of more humility It's not just physiological, but also sociological. A lot of it has to do with parenting and the school system and the educational system and all of that. I would say a big part of it has to do with that. And I see that in my coaching work. You know, you mentioned imposter syndrome. I like to call it imposter thoughts, by the way, rather than syndrome, because I think the term syndrome has some negativity associated with it. So we start thinking about it as a disease that we have to cure. I think imposter thoughts is a little bit more liberating in that these are just thoughts that come to us and we can change the way we think and we can overcome them. But you're right. Women tend to experience that more than men. At the same time, they do face a double bind in many organizations in that the expectation from a female leader is for someone to be more humble, right? More compassionate, more caring, 
for that threaded world, more nurturing, right? Women are supposed to be more nurturing. I'm doing air quotes here. So that's the expectation. But the story that most people tell in an organization about what a leader should look like, it's type A personality, walks in the room, commands the room, you know, my way or the highway, all of that. So there is a huge gap between the expectation that some cultures have of women and the expectations that some cultures have of leaders. And that is where the problem lies in, in that women are encouraged to lean more on what comes naturally to them. But when they do that, then they are not seen and not promoted into leadership positions. Interesting, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of a client who hired me to help a leader become more, quote, leaderly. And it was, in this case, it was a man. And he was very high on the humility scale. Just a beautiful, beautiful man but not as assertive and so not perceived as leaderly. And yet he had, I believe, the humbitious qualities. He was very nurturing. He was a palliative care doc. So his role was helping people navigate challenges in life, end of life type challenges often. So you would want someone nurturing. You didn't want Steve Jobs in that role. And yet the perception, and this comes back to, I think, another double bind that we perceive leaders as this more aggressive type behavior as equaling good. I'm wondering, it sounds like one of the really important contributions your book makes is giving us models for what ambitious looks like so we can move away from Steve Jobs 1.0 as good and someone like this gentleman as bad and rather find the middle ground that is humble, ambitious, but not sociopath and also not smart and passive that we have to have a band in the middle. And the reason I say band is some organizations are going to want more smart and collaborative. Some business organizations are going to want a little more assertive. So there's probably a band where I, as an individual, will be a best fit, given my wiring and upbringing and and everything about me. Yeah. Back to your client, right? I'm sure the advice for that leader is to be more assertive, right? Don't sit on the sidelines. Be more involved. Speak up early and often in meetings. Develop the skills to have difficult conversations. When we think about all of these skills and habits, none of them goes against humility right? They're about dialing up the assertiveness and the ambition, but that doesn't mean that you can't maintain your beautiful nature as you described it, as a humble person who is compassionate and caring and nurturing. And that's the point from the book. And that's the point I'm trying to make is these are not mutually exclusive. It's not an or, it's an and. We can be both compassionate and strong. We can be both humble and ambitious. Unfortunately, in that case, I think the organization had the expectation that that wasn't true. The organization wanted him to be much more assertive than he was innately. And maybe he should have been a little bit more. But it it seemed in that case, not just to change the individual, but change the expectation that who's the guy who walking tall man with big stick, that's what good looks like. And if that's what the organization believes is good, in my mind, the problem was largely the organization's view and less about the individual. Yeah. 
you know, sometimes it's not the right fit. And, and I talk about that in the book. It would be naive and honestly unrealistic to say that this approach to leadership works in every situation, in every organization, in every culture. It doesn't. There are some organizational cultures that, as you described, are still old-fashioned. They still see leaders in a certain light. And honestly, that ambitious approach is not going to work. It's not going to be a good fit. And I tell leaders, if you find yourself in that situation, you know, you, you have to make a really hard decision. Do I need the job? Do I need, you know, the financial security that the job provides? And if not, maybe that's not an environment where your traits are going to be appreciated. And maybe it's time to look for, for another team or another organization. I think it's a really important statement that while we're asserting that this is a better set of characteristics, that there are organizations that are also successful that take a different perspective. Yeah. I've been doing this for a while now and thinking about these things to realize that there are no absolutes in leadership uh-huh. or in life, right? There's no absolutes. Anyone that says this is the approach that works best in every situation for everyone, I know that it's not true. And there is research that shows, you know, just like I shared the research that shows that a ambitious leader tends to get better outcomes. There's research that shows that sometimes having that approach in a team that doesn't appreciate it or expects something different from a leader doesn't work. So we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that, yeah, it may work 80% of the time, 85% of the time, but there's still some situations where it doesn't work. And either you change the approach or you change the organization. To that end, I'm thinking of all of the changes that have happened even pre-COVID. So we had COVID, we have supply chain issues, we have increased volatility across the board. My hypothesis is that the current context requires more ambitious leaders than assertive leaders, that at some point in the past, assertive without humility actually worked. That equation has now changed. I agree. I totally agree with that for a couple of reasons. So with all of the challenges that you mentioned that are COVID-related or not, what every organization needs today is for their workforce to be highly engaged and for the creativity and innovation to be unleashed, right, to deal with all of these challenges. And we have clear evidence that shows that when leaders adopt this ambitious approach, Engagement goes up and creativity and innovativeness is unleashed. The other angle to look at this, which I believe has helped leaders become more humble, is when we reflect at what happened in the last two years and a half, a global pandemic, right? All these things that we never imagined would happen in our world. I think that brings some humility to all of us, especially to leaders, especially leaders who had a big ego before and thought, I can control the world. I'm in control of it. I'm the CEO. I'm the king of the kingdom or you know, the queen or whatever. I can tell the world how to behave. I think that virus, that small little virus that changed the way we live, brought some humility to us to reflect a little bit and say, you know what? Yes, what I do is important. My job is significant. But in the grand scheme of things, I have no control over anything. Which caused a huge level of disruption for people 
who actually believed they had all the answers. And their world reinforced it. I'm a CXO of a large company and everyone around me reinforces my competence. And it was an external factor that caused, I think, many people to really reevaluate how effective they were. That may have been very private reevaluations, not public, but the incidence of anxiety and depression, again, my hypothesis, I don't have the research for it, is in part, it dislodged us from our comfortable patterns that allowed us to be in control. And I think all of us had some level of discomfort and for those inclined to be reflective, it prompted reflection, especially because we couldn't leave our houses. There, There was less to do to distract. So for that group of leaders, it was also an invitation to shift in a way that you're saying is, and I agree, is much more effective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have another story of someone that we all know or many of us could point to either real person or even a TV character who emulates the behaviors you're pointing to. Yeah, you know, since we're talking about crisis and and dealing with crisis, I want to talk about a world leader that some of members of the audience may be familiar with, and it's the Prime Minister of New Zealand. So her name is Jacinda Ardern. When Ardern became Prime Minister in 2017, she was the youngest female leader in the world. Now, typically when you have a young leader, especially a young female leader, as we all know, there's doubts, you know, there's skepticism and cynical people around saying, oh, can she succeed? Does she have what it takes? Can she deal with the challenges? And if you recall, a couple of years into her administration, they had a big, huge crisis happen in New Zealand when a terrorist walked into two places of worship and killed 55 innocent people in the town of Christchurch. Her leadership reaction at that point in time was textbook ambitious leadership. First, she started with the humility and the compassion. She went into the victims and the families of the victims, and she went and sat in their living rooms. She listened to them. She cried with them. She mourned with them. She supported them and comforted them. She did that for about two weeks. But then when the mourning period was over, she went straight to parliament and demanded that they pass gun control laws to prevent this from happening again. Now, I'm not going to get into the politics of gun control, but the point I'm trying to make is how decisive and brave she was to make sure that parliament passed a legislation that had been dragging on for years and years. That legislation became law in a couple weeks, and it was all her drive and her ambition. So we see how this leadership approach is especially appropriate in situations of crisis, because you want to balance the two. You want to show the people who are suffering compassion and empathy and care, but you also need to make decisions. You also need to take action. A couple of years after that, COVID-19 hit, and it hit the whole world, not just New Zealand. But here again, Jacinda Ardern's reaction to that crisis was textbook leadership. First, they started with the decisiveness. They closed their borders right away. They imposed an immediate lockdown. And we can debate forever whether that was the right thing to do. I know everyone has a different opinion about that. 
But she did that early on. And then for the rest of the time, she dialed up the compassion and the empathy. She showed up every day on social media, live streaming, talking to average citizens, reassuring them that the government has got their back. The government is going to continue to support them during this difficult time. And here again, we see her balancing the empathy and the humility with the strength and the decisiveness. Thank you. That's a beautiful example. And one thing that strikes me as I listen is there are times I can be all humility, compassion, and there are other times I can be all ambition. I'm not a dot in the middle, but I've got the ability to play the range just like a good tennis player that I can be on both sides of the court, forehand, backhand, but I'm able to move around the spectrum with relative ease. I may find one more comfortable, but what I see as an observer is I can step in with compassion when required, humility when required, and I know the difference. And so as we're coming to the end of the show, I think it's beautiful that you've given us an example When I'm thinking about hiring someone on my team, I might ask a question related to how did you deal with a difficult situation? How did you show care? And how did you get results? Something like that. So I'm testing for not just I, as you said earlier, it's we, it's luck. It's I nurtured people. I taught people, I coached people, and we drove hard to get the results we needed during this time of crisis. And if I can hear both sides relatively balanced, along with we words, structure words, culture words, then I have likely identified someone who can demonstrate these traits much of the time. Yeah. The one underlying trait, which we kind of touched on a little bit, but we didn't discuss that much, is having the emotional intelligence to know what is required in what situation, right? Do I start with dialing up the humility and the empathy, or do I start by dialing up the decisiveness and the ambition, right? What kind of crisis is this? What kind of situation is this? And what do I dial up and dial down depending on my feelings, but also the feelings of the people around me and what the situation requires? So a strong, both situational awareness and personal awareness. Beautiful. So, Amr, you referenced earlier the Humbitious assessment on your website. How would our listeners find that? Sure, sure. So it's available on my website, amrkaisi.com, A-M-E-R-K-A-I-S-S-I.com, which is also the book's website. You know, they can go there. They can take the test. It's available for free. They will get a score that tells them where they are. But again, I would highly encourage that they have others do the test for them so that they can get some different perspectives. Thank you so much. And I want to thank our listeners for engaging and for the important work you're doing at this time in history. And I invite you to take Amr's assessment and really reflect on how are you balancing your own humility, your own ambition? Are you effective at navigating that spectrum Do you have the emotional intelligence, the situational analysis to self-gauge? And if not, are you getting feedback from others who can help you navigate that process? Thank you for listening. I invite you to sign up to our LinkedIn newsletter where you will get to hear Amr and read his blog and others every week. 
We are here to serve you to ensure that you are getting the most relevant leadership content so that you can stay current in this challenging time. Thank you for listening.